I thank you kindly for firing up the podcast system. That's cast with me, podcast system. With me, lovey. And yes, that is my real name. Every episode, I tackle something new in the world of politics, pop culture, race, and the lack of relations. Be sure to subscribe and enjoy every shady moment. Be hashtag blessed, y'all. I'm excited to welcome you guys to today's episode where I'll be interviewing two awesome educators and people within the education world. Akil Bello is my first guest, and he is an educator, speaker, entrepreneur, and nationally renowned expert at teaching people how to distinguish between A, B, C, and D. Going on his third decade in the shadow education industry, he has developed dozens of admissions and test preparation programs, trained hundreds of teachers, and helped thousands of students prepare for standardized tests from the APGAR to the LSAT. Described as refreshing mix of brilliance and foolishness, Akil is a public intellectual who combines deep research with a sardonic wit to inform the public about issues of testing, equity, and educational access. He's been featured in national newspapers, at conference keynotes, in front of the movie camera, on the computer screen, and even on your mobile phone, where his legendary Twitter pseudonyms and hate reads have earned him thousands of followers or bots. After selling Bell Curves, a socially responsible test preparation company he founded with his brother, Akil served as the Director of Equity and Access for the Princeton Review, where he continued to work to increase access to education for disadvantaged communities. In his current full-time job as Senior Director of Advocacy and Advancement at FairTest, Akil works to end his more lucrative part-time job as a highly paid test prep tutor. Akil lives in the birthplace of hip-hop with his wife, two sons, and internet daughter, Enid. Akil graduated with a degree in architecture from THE Hillman College. Welcome to the show, Akil. Thanks for having I, me, lovey. I love your bio. I, I adore your bio. <laughs> and, <laughs> you. and, and I don't think I've actually seen you in person since, oh yeah, what year was that? 2000 uh, and something? Some, yeah, Eight? maybe. Five? 2009? Okay, I, no, two, okay. no, it must have been 2007. So Akil and I uh, both worked in conjunction at an organization called MLT, where we helped, we, I mean, you helped more than I did. I, I ran parties for the alums. Um, you, you helped uh, students who were applying to business school. And obviously it was mostly students of color, black, Hispanic. Was that pretty much it? Did we just work with yep. black and Hispanic yeah. students? Yeah. I think so. I think it was predominantly black and Hispanic. And I did some GMAT prep. Yeah, so you, you did it all, including the APGAR for those young people who are ready to jump right into no. business school. After all the birth. tests need some prepping. <laughs> all the tests need prepping. All right, so we're going to jump right into it because we are in such interesting times. 
Such dramatic and interesting times. So we're on the cusp of school starting up again, and you're sort of in the higher ed world, right? So you you sort of see what's going on with the testing and people applying and, you know, everyone comes to you and says, Akil, what should I do and how should I get in? So I want to start off with a question that uh, you actually mentioned. What's the point of college education? Like, I mean, I know it sounds crazy, but really, what are we pushing here when we're saying everybody should be going off to college? Yeah, that's 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 a deep one. Like, it's deeper than it seems, Mm -hmm. right? Because... There's a history there. And for me, that question is always about history. Mm-hmm. If you go back far enough, sixth, seventh, eighth grade was where people ended, right? Yeah. Like, and then it became a push for high school. Mm-hmm. And then there's sort of in the 80s, a default to college is the goal for everyone, right? Actually, it probably started after World War II. You got the GI Bill, you got a whole bunch of opportunities. For, they were trying to find opportunities for soldiers returning. Right. Right. And so there became a push towards college. And it, it really took off in the 80s where it was everyone goes to college. Right. Like you should go to college. Everybody go to college, get a job, get a life, get a degree. You know, <laughs> and so that <laughs> that became the push. I don't know that we voted on that. I don't know that, you know, there was yeah. a discussion of this. There was just a movement that sort of developed towards college is the be all end all. That correlated with a whole bunch of other things that made college more expensive, more selective, sort of harder to get into. So it makes me laugh when you see all the boomers talking about in my day. Like in your day, Harvard admitted 40% of the people who applied. Yeah. So like we're, ta- we're talking a whole different world. Go to college now has become the de facto conversation and concurrently has become really expensive. And concurrently, I'm not sure the value anymore. Yeah. The degree on the other end is a problem. It's funny because I, I joke with people and, you know, people think I'm really joking and I'm not kidding. I say if my kids want to forego college and learn a really amazing skill like plumbing or car mechanic and own their own business, I am here for it because I can't get anybody to actually show up because they're (laughs) that much in demand. And it's almost like we forgot that there's a whole nother world of skill sets when it comes to trades, right? But here we are in the the college world. If everyone's got to go to college and everyone wants to come out with this insane amount of debt, Right. So the, the, the whole problem I see is that all these narratives are badly framed and often wrong. Average debt is around $40,000. That's not insane. That's cool. That's manageable. That's less than your car note. Right. Like, like you know, so cool. Which would you rather do? $40,000 for college or $40,000 for a car? Right. Like cars depreciate. College value will essentially appreciate. So I'm good with that debt. The narrative of $200,000 is just hyperbole. Ah. It's the... It's the person who go who takes out loans for undergrad, takes out a bunch of loans for grad school, especially. That's where they get you. Columbia has a journalism degree, which is amazing. I think it's $100,000 a year. What? And journalist, I want to say the average salary is about $40,000. Yeah. So, y'all, like, so y'all can't see my face, but it's right. legit like, what? Right. $100,000 right. a year to right. write? You could have a blog. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. So, right. <laughs> so, so there's those issues that are involved in the conversation of go to college. I still think that black folks need to go to college because of the world we live in, the credentialism in play requires a lot of this. Now, I think on the other end, we need to fight the companies that are playing this crazy credentialism game. 
somebody tweeted the other day, a job posting master's degree preferred maybe it was i don't know if it was required or preferred and it was 15 dollars an hour shut your mouth no 15 dollars 15 15 one five i was you know three more than 12 like that, like, like right. no no right no. that that's just like that it's company should be right that's what that's because either what they think a master's is is out of whack or what they're paying is out of whack. It's all out of whack. Because those two that's, numbers just should not yeah, right. that's, that's not that's not what right. we're doing and that's not what I'm about to do. But okay, right. so so I agree that I think, especially for black folk in general, like without the credentialing of a higher degree, if you want to go certain directions in life, you need it. Correct. You know, Correct. even if like me, you get a master's degree in education and you're not you using it. I do from Harvard. Oh, and, oh, yeah. you. oh you all kind of elite. I'm all kind of broke. No. <laughs> <laughs> you are the elitist of the elite. <laughs> but what I did do wisely is I went to undergrad at a school that was willing to pretty much pay for my entire degree. Bowden at the mm -hmm. time was looking to increase diversity and they were throwing money at it. And I was like, I'll go to Maine. I'll do right. that. And everyone's like, you're crazy. I was like, you go off to Wesleyan and you pay them all the money because they're not giving any kind of scholarships or, mm -hmm. you know, rebates. But anyway, so for those of us who don't, who aren't necessarily using our degrees in the way that we had intended, I still find the benefit in having the degree and the name attached to the things that I want to do in life. You know, it's sort of, it's like right. a initial passageway but here's the question that i have for you so in current times obviously we're going through this whole rona nonsense right people are going back to school a lot of schools are opting harvard being one of them to work remotely mm -hmm. so i was watching the news yesterday which i haven't done in probably five months and the first thing i see is colleges and universities some are actually increasing their tuition while some are reducing tuition by maybe 10 percent what are your thoughts about that when you know that if you're going to be working from home or if you're getting a college education not in the way that you had anticipated, do the costs align still? It's tough and ugly all around, right? Mm -hmm. That's really what it is. I think that there's two things that I would pay attention to. One is the Rona is hopefully <laughs> temporary. Let's hope so. Right? So it's impossible, really. Like I think the colleges that have reduced their costs are taking a huge risk it's understandable. It's understandable that the market is sort of wanting that. But in truth, their costs haven't gone down. Their costs have likely gone up. Right. Right. Because they still have physical buildings they have to maintain. They now actually have to have two different programs in place. They have to have a virtual teaching option and a physical teaching option. And if they put in a lazy river three years ago, that lazy river still needs to be maintained. So, you know, so, and, and there's not a huge number of colleges that have lazy rivers, right? No, but, but that's they... sort of the, that's the prototypical, let's hold it out as the sign of college horribleness of I expenses, mean, blah, blah, blah. Let's be right? honest. Like, so, there are a lot of those Texas schools with nail salons yeah, and all that stuff. Yes, and you're like, why yes, did y'all do right, that? Right. <laughs> and that's part of the issue, right? Is that increasing cost required the justification of increasing cost. Right. So you put in a lazy river to make your college look better than the one up the street because you're going to increase tuition. Maybe you needed to increase tuition, but right. But then there's there's the whole pricing game that becomes that issue, right? 
right? Well, my school got to be more expensive than the one up the street, or my expensive has increased because I'm competing for fancy professor number three, right? So costs go up. So then you want to increase amenities. So amenities start to go up, right? What I really hope happens following the Rona is that there's a reassessment of things that will strip away a lot of the BS, Mm -hmm. right? I think, you know, shutting down the lazy river would be lovely, you know, shutting down the nail salons. Like that would be great to realign some of that. A year without college sports will be fascinating. Now I say fascinating knowing fully well that there are thousands of people who will not have jobs, right? Mm -hmm. Like that, that, that's a real, real cost. Like I'm fairly sure I saw 300 million maybe, or like one college, was projecting their shortfall in the hundreds of millions because of the oh, wow. loss of football. Right? Wow. Just, just let's process that. <laughs> Losing football could mean the hundred, hundreds of millions of dollars in shortfall in the budget. Which means scholarships, like which means facilities, which means a which lot means, of things. I don't know, right? And I, I, I have some questions around, does that money actually trickle into the academic side? That would be really great to see. That would that would be lovely to believe. I have <laughs> seen some evidence that at least at some places that may not be the case. Well, perhaps they'll do, so. you know, since since the folks at Harvard Business School are working remotely, they'll have some time to do a, a Harvard study, a case study on on the finances of some of these institutions and the loss of, of this. That would be really I'd, I'd love to see that. I'm just putting it out there to the powers that be, you know, someone someone get on that. Um, so so we're going to suffer, obviously, financially, you mm-hmm. know, academically speaking. I don't know. I you know, I work. I'm it's been a long time since I've been in the, the higher ed sphere. Mm-hmm. Just having two kids at home that I had to, quote unquote, homeschool. I never want to do that again. So that's a different story in terms of, okay, I don't know, the absorption of that. <laughs> right. Let's fix, let's fix the language, though, right? Did you actually homeschool or no. did you manage I monitored. I monitored. Okay, okay. I monitored. Okay, okay. Okay. And even in the monitoring stage, I was like, this is for the birds. I don't want to do this <laughs> and, and, well, let's also process that you got a master's of education. Exactly. You are the one, I the taught. one who should be down to do this, right? <laughs> I taught sixth grade social studies. I was a high school tutor. I was an ESL teacher. And I don't want this life. So that's a whole that's a whole Yo. conversation. Yo. Yeah. And I'm mad at you because, you know, I have been a tutor for 30 years for all the Tessises, right? Yeah. And yeah. you know, working with my own kids, I'm like, oh, somebody this, might be throttled. This is special. <laughs> this is special. Right. You know, like I yeah. want to continue to love my children. You know, that's what I want to do. So I but I'm also imagining, you know, just to shift gears a little bit. So for some students, obviously doing remote learning at a on the college level, not a big deal. Right. You know, some students never even came to lectures like I I, we all had those friends in in college who were like, I I can do this on my own. Just give me the assignments and I'll turn in the papers and take the test. But then we're looking at the the equality gap. Right. And so this is Mm -hmm. one of those things that I'm trying to figure out. For those individuals where being on a college campus sort of was the equalizer, what happens when they're back in their shared apartment with the right. parents and the siblings and the noise and the chaos and the right. Wi-Fi that's slow, and they're still paying or expected to pay the same Correct. exact tuition that others are paying? I mean, 
everything that is happening now existed in the before times, Mm -hmm. right? I mean, it just exacerbates it, right? And I think that all of the challenges of education existed and many of them because they're being you know they're being exasperated exacerbated in such a way that it becomes really public the inequities that existed right so i think that's really what's going on is that everything you see now that makes you go holy hell some kids are getting screwed right that existed before it just was a little bit more like because there wasn't the pandemic there were systems in place that allowed the mitigation of those problems Right. And it existed at the college level, it exists in exists in K-12, it exists across the board. Right. The only question is the extent, the number of people who suffer these problems and the resources in place to solve them. Um, so yeah, I think that virtual college in theory is is great, right? But in practice, there's definitely a subset of people who are going to have real challenges engaging. And are, is their debt going to be forgiven? It's like, hey, you couldn't log on because you had to go home. You couldn't actually experience college. Um, forget the, the social elements of college. And I think that's what a lot of the wealthier families are complaining about, the loss of the social elements of college. Well, you know what? That's not what college really was supposed to be. You were paying for an education. So stop whining because you can't sit around, you know, in the yard with people, whatever. <laughs> I mean, I just, I'm, you know, I when this all started and I saw a whole lot of complaints in the New York Times, oh, my God, no one will be able to visit colleges again. Guess what? Poor people ain't been visiting f- from Jump Street. Forever. <laughs> you know, so I was like, yeah, they went up to the street, the college up the street, or they went to a college far away, sight unseen. So... Right. No visits, I'm okay with that, right? So I think that this is changing the dynamic. It's making some people who had all the resources recognize severe restrictions that you know were caused by wealth previously, but are now being caused by, by a pandemic. So, so I think that, again, I hope that what happens on the other side of this is a reassessment of all of those things in light of what we've seen exposed. Mm-hmm. And that exists on case 12 side as well. It does, it does. Another question for you, not that I'm trying to speculate what may happen to many of these smaller colleges and universities that don't have Let's the Let's Nostradamus this. Let's yes, go. Full Nostradamus. <laughs> so I once worked for a college um, called Pine Manor College, very small, all women's college right outside of Boston in Chestnut Hill. Beautiful campus. Mm-hmm. Not a lot of money. Mm-hmm. They were sort of like living off of the uh, the land. Literally living off of, you know, being able to rent out Chestnut Hill property. So I'm thinking about colleges like that. These really small, you know, paycheck to paycheck, pretty much colleges. Mm-hmm. What are they going to are they going to be here in a year's time, in two years time? Because I'm looking at the financials and I know Harvard is suffering. And, I, you know, I hate to keep using Harvard as the example, but, you know, Stanford is it. not suffering. It isn't. Um it is not. It is. Well, it depends on how this is. It's rich people suffering. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right? like, that, my there's a big difference. Are down, right? Like, yes. like no. My you portfolio. My portfolio looks so right. sad right now. It's like portfolio. What you mean? I gotta transfer money from my stocks to pay salaries? <laughs> like, like, what? I don't have the cash flow to pay the maid. Well, That's the rich un- people suffering. Right. That's the smaller suffering. 
the smaller schools are dealing with the Bank of America withdrawal over overdraft fee. Right, <laughs> right, right. So, so yeah. So, so forget Stanford, right? Like, <laughs> if you have to dip into your endowment that is the GDP of a small nation, we're okay with that. I'm fine if you reduce your endowment by fifty percent to maintain operating costs. There ain't, you know, Stanford ain't never going under, right? Okay. So. And I use Stanford as the catch-all for like, all the places because <laughs> <laughs> they're all the same to me. You know, yeah. <laughs> you could pick them. Uh, so they're yeah. not suffering per se. They are having to realign financial priorities. Mm-hmm. Poor people suffer, right? Yeah. Poor people have to make life choices. And I think the same thing is going to be true of wealthier institutions versus less well-endowed and supported institutions. There are absolutely institutions that are out there considering, do we try to secure some sort of loan in Mm. the multiple millions of dollars that will put us in debt for the next 20 years in order to survive this? Or do we allow the institution to go under, therefore putting students in a horrible position, putting hundreds of thousands of people out of work um, you know, there's some real tough decisions being made right now. I mean, as sad as it is, I had a business I sold in 2014. I'm sort of sitting here going, thank God I don't have a business. Yeah. You no, know, I, and, you know, and, yeah. You know, it's like, I don't, I don't want to, and I've got friends who are making that decision. How do they keep employees, you know, who want to be responsible business people? But as this extends and as the administration screws it up and gives us wave 1.3, you know, when it's supposed to be wave one and over, now we're in wave 1.2, 1.3, right? We are like, so we're just going to let this roll out for the next two years? This like, is- how do you, you know, how do you plan a business around that when Florida and Texas going to give the Rona to the rest of the country? They are not just going to give it. They are packaging it, packaging it up in like with a nice little bow, and they're what? sending it express. And they're like, "Please right. enjoy this gift to you." And it's like, "I would rather right. not. I would rather right. not. Please behave but, yourselves." You know, I don't have to wear a mask, so I'm taking. So many <laughs> you know, it's like I want to take a deep breath, but then again, I'm like, "Who's standing next to me without their mask mm-hmm. on in public yeah. places?" And so even Word. even right now, I live in a town where there's a boarding school on campus, and they're returning. So, mm-hmm. you know, like a mini college. So they're all coming back to campus and are going to try to create a bubble on the campus so that students aren't going into town and vice versa mm-hmm. and everyone's in their dorm rooms as much as possible. And I think about a university that has 20, 30,000 students. Right. Like, how do you manage 20, 30,000 people? You do it via self-delusion. Uh, that's that's, <laughs> that's so not comforting. That's there's so no not other way. Akeel, I mean, like... My wife was saying it to me yesterday, right? It's like, look at MLB and look at even the NBA. Let's look at the NBA because the NBA did it right. They made a bubble. They brought people in the bubble. You quarantined to get in the bubble. You ain't getting out of the bubble. Like we are, we are bubbling up this piece, right? <laughs> so, NBA did it right. And then was it Lou Williams? Went to, yeah. <laughs> yeah. you know, my homie won his chicken wings. There's he always one in the bunch. Yeah. Right. But still, you know, as well as they've done it, the staff are going home and coming back. Right. There's there's all the people who are coming into 
clean the parks, right? So the NBA players may actually not get infected, right? And they are doing it right with multiple millions, if not billions. Like every player is saying, I'm literally risking millions of dollars if I do something stupid. Every organization, I'm literally missing, mi- risking millions, if not billions of dollars, if I don't do this right. So, so these are people with every clear, direct financial motivation to get it right. And they've done it okay, but there's still risk. If we roll that out to Major League Baseball, every day teams are infected. There is no bubble, right? And again, millions, if not billions of dollars to get it right, to stay your butt home and don't get the Rona. I think I just read this morning, the Cardinals canceled a whole bunch of games because half their team got the Rona. Half? I don't know if it's half. Okay, but but more than one. (laughs) Multiple millionaires just just got infected. Multiple. And And yesterday there's a story about a pitcher who has to be out the whole season because he recovered but has heart issues and can't pitch, can't do athletics at a professional level. If we call baseball athletics. Well, I, you know, that's, a you know, debate. <laughs> yeah, that's debatable, but we're going to let that one slide. You know, I've, so. I've, I've seen how they roll onto the field. But, you know. um, yeah, no shade, just a little, <laughs> a little shade. Um, I, I'm per- listen, I'm perplexed. Like every day I wake up and I'm like, okay, today's going to be a better day. And we're going to like yeah. get our acts together. And it's going to no, 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 no. And it's not. America. And I, yeah. And, I, and I said this this morning, I was like, America with a big capital I in the middle, because that's yeah, all people yeah. see them. It's like Team I, Team yes. I. And I worry about those who are really going to suffer in the next two to three years because of it. There's a lot of suffering going on in the immediate future. But like you were saying, for these smaller colleges, you know, I'm thinking about the HBCUs, for those who are unaware, historically black colleges and universities. So for the HBCUs that don't have the same endowments as other colleges and universities. If you're on your second year, you've already taken out all these crazy loans. If something happens to one of the smaller ones that has to shut down or get bought out by another college, you don't get that money back. You then have to transfer to a new institution. Like, you you know, this is not, I don't know what to say. Yeah. There's some real implications around, all of the things, right? And I think that there's some real financial implications for families, for institutions, for communities. You know, there are places where the entire town exists around the university. Yes. And so, very much so. You know, Champaign Urbana, right? Mm-hmm. Like the town is Champaign Urbana, Urbana Champaign, whatever the heck you want to call it, University mm-hmm. of Illinois, Urbana Champaign. The town of Urbana Champaign exists because that university has 25,000 students. So if 10% of those students come back, then the store up the street doesn't have any clients. No one's buying clothes, yeah. right? No one's, no one's going to the restaurants, right? Because the community exists around the university. Liberty so University. Some, yeah. But we'd be okay if Liberty went under. Like, I'm going to say I drove She would be through. a benefit of society, to society. I'm, I'm not mad that they went back into... Is it horrible? I'm not mad nope. that they went back to school. Nope. I'm like, y'all just stay there and like hang out and just you know, close off the outside. Right. Every now and again, something, through. someone, some institution trends on Twitter and I'm like hopeful. <laughs> <laughs> you were like, so that might take out 
some right. of the negativity and right. the, you know toxic right. people in the future. But yep. you know, I don't wish any ill will upon anyone. <clears throat> but if you choose to make foolish decisions, <laughs> <laughs> you get what you get. Then karma. <laughs> I I was just I was like you. I shouldn't say it. It sounds horrible, but you know, don't be a Herman Cain. You know what I mean? Like, be smart. (laughs) I hear you. I hear you. Be smart. But okay, so what's what's sort of a final, you know, really deep thought from the, you know, um, from Mister Akil Bello, creator of Bell Curves, (laughs) testing testing guru. Yeah. Save us. So. Here are my deep thoughts and pontifications around the future um, is that you have to consider risk and what you're willing to risk for. This year, there's a real possibility that no, that one third of the SATs and ACTs will be given that had been given last year, right? And even that one third that's given, you know, how many are being given in high risk states, high risk environments? Like, is it worth your life to take the test? My answer for most people probably should be no, right? Like it just, it, if you delay going to college for one year, that's all right. That adds, I agree. That's kind of good. Like, okay, like let's, all right, let's, let me find some part-time gig or something to occupy my year and just delay going for a year, right? So, so you have to think about risk reward, right? And, and we've been sort of put in this mindset of this is the schedule of things, but really that schedule's fake. There's no, I, I hate the term learning loss, because there's no such thing, really. There's learning delayed, right? And it, it messes up the schedule that eighth graders weren't taught to solve for a single variable equation this past spring because they just didn't get to that because of the Rona. But you know what? We could teach them next fall. Let's just go crazy here and say, oh, we could teach them all the things next fall and just what? push everything. Right. Crazy. But they will so, be taller. They will right. be taller. That's a Maybe shame. even older, right? <laughs> so, so I think that what we have to think about is how do we safely live our lives and accept that some things will be more ambiguous than they had been? If you're planning to apply to college this year, then your choices will be more ambiguous. Um, test optional. A lot of colleges are going test optional. That increases the vagueness to a certain extent, right? To what, you know, I can't predict what will happen next year on the basis of last year because last year was in the before times. Right. So we can't know what's going to happen. We don't know what those pa- uh, what the financial aid package is going to look like. So you have to accept more ambiguity. You have to accept that there is a risk to your life that has to be calculated into this. And you may have to delay some things that were planned. That's fine. You can't go to college if you're dead. Right. So, yes. so, you know, so, so I would just, you know, I think that what we all have to accept is that things are more ambiguous with regards to education specifically. Right. Education can be delayed. So I would accept the delaying of education, the postponement of plans in the, li- in the light of health, well-being, financial stability, all of those sort of things. And if you look at it that way, then, you know, all right, fine. I'm going to wait a month. I'm going to wait a year. I right. couldn't agree more. And that's kind of where my mind is at. It's not that I don't want to teach my children, but I don't want to teach my children. And I... <laughs> And I would truly love it if we just said, just hit pause for six months. Yeah. You know, get creative to keep teachers employed, but just yes. hit pause on everything. Because where are we going? You and know, that's what the rest of the, the world is going? doing. They're just right. like, mm, we kind of don't want to die. So let's just slow down. 
that's the rest of the world. But, you know, rugged individualism. We can move forward. Right. You know, I'm not I refuse to be mad about any decision my kid's school makes. It's like y'all going full virtual, go full virtual. You going online, go online. Because you know what? I've seen the plans that says the tent school thing they're looking at will cost them half a million dollars a year. No, thank you. Nah, right. Like, nah, let's Mm -mm. let's just chill on that and use that for scholarships when we get past the Rona. Yeah, I, I, I completely agree with you. And I'm I'm excited to hear that there are others out there who also feel the same. I'm not saying that, you know, we discussed or anything and came to a mutual decision before you got here, which we didn't. But <laughs> so this is the first time you... we've actually spoken in like I know. a decade years. or more. Years. <laughs> this is the problem with like online interactions, yes. right? You feel yes. like you're kicking it with people. And I'm like, yeah, right. I know what your up? children look like, although right. we haven't spoken in 13 years. Right. But like, we're, we're, we're hanging out. We're hanging out. Right. Akil, thank you so, so much for coming on to the thank show today. You. And I will probably tap into it again in a few months after school shut down again, because sounds like a plan. They will. Because we'll be sitting at home with devices anyway. Yes. Yes, we will. (laughs) Have an awesome one. Thank you for coming on to the show. So we are ready for part two of our conversation, talking about education during a pandemic and just education in general, because I think the pandemic has taught us a lot about what we're missing within the education system, both public and private. So I'd like to welcome back to the show, Kyle, who we've had on numerous times. And before we get started, I just want to say, Kyle, I just saw a picture, an image of a Georgia high school that started classes today for the first time. And I'm telling you, it it knocked me off my feet because it legitimately looked like Times Square on New Year's Eve, except that it was indoors and maybe four people were wearing masks. So here we go. This is it. School is starting. You are primary yeah. sixth and seventh grade teacher at a private school. So I'm just going to let you just start. Like, tell me how you're feeling. What do you, you know, where, where's your head? I think my head's in a lot of places and it's been in a lot of places probably since March uh, when this really started to take off this idea of COVID and, and schooling being intertwined. And I think Right now, I, I do feel the anxiety um, settling in. I always get a little bit of anxiety before the start of the school year, but right. this one is particularly new because we're now dealing with the start of the year with a pandemic. In the spring, I was like, you know what? I'm looking forward to the fall because now I'll actually have had prepared for the pandemic in, in some classes. Unfortunately, now that I'm in the situation, I'm still feeling that anxiety. But with that said, you know, I'm ready to tackle uh, the challenge of it. I think that's the great thing about we teachers. We we do know how to adjust. I'm just going to uh, make sure I, I bring all my skills that I've picked up over the summer to the forefront of, of, of this battle. So I'm curious because I'm, I'm out of touch with sort of the education world as a former teacher. Have there been conversations among teachers, both at your school and other private schools and public schools? Like, have you guys started online groups? Are you guys talking about yeah. what do we do? How do you feel? Like, what's the vibe yeah. of teachers? And obviously you're not speaking for every teacher out there, but yeah. for those that you have been yeah. in communication with. Yeah. And I'll just lead with this. Um, You know, I don't want to say that I'm an expert on a a lot of this. You know, I I do have my private school lens to share to the show. Um, So I can speak to that and a a little bit of what I've heard 
um, with regards to, to the public schools. I think when I think of the private school, we're hearing a lot of different things. And the, the tricky thing about schooling, I think, in the states is it's very various and it depends on situations. And we have three different types, essentially, you know, charter, public, private. Um, and, and that creates um, different lanes also within each of those three. Um, and when you add a pandemic to that mix, that also changes things. And when you think of some private schools that are actually on the fringe of closing and actually might need to take out loans in order to support their establishment, then that's another, I, I guess, characteristic that some people might not think of, right? So I think the, the buzzword being tossed around the private schools uh, is the word hybrid, which essentially hybrid is this idea of making some time for in-person learning and some time for remote learning. Now, some schools are going to handle that differently. I, I know that at some schools, you might have a smaller group of kids, right? So let's say enrollment numbers uh, might be lower in uh, middle school versus an upper school, then you may be able to maybe hold a different uh, array of classes or different standards for holding those classes. For example, if you have a class of six, um, that might be a more ideal size than a class of 12, right? right? Um, with regards to teaching um, and tackling uh, this pandemic. Um, if you have a class of 18, 20 at a private school, when you do have those in-person classes as part of the hybrid model, that may be a little bit more difficult. I also recognize that uh, with the hybrid model, what I'm noticing as a preparer for teaching these classes is it's a different amount of prep. To me, it seems like more prep because now I'm not just worried about um, in-person classes and the routines that I'm setting up with regards to keeping kids safe during a pandemic, but also what I would be doing normally. But I'm also worried about like what that means for my remote sessions that might happen the day after the day before. And that creates for me, at least a little bit more anxiety. And I think just a more onus for me to be on my game without knowing what the complete game is. Right. And, uh, and I'm, I'm also yeah. going to say, because I think it's important to recognize, and this does not negate the amount of effort and work that you have to put in, but yeah. I did recognize the difference when we were doing remote learning between my two sons' teachers. One was a single, mm. child-free individual, mm -hmm. and the other had mm -hmm. kids, dogs, the whole nine. So yeah. looking at how different their approach to online learning was, was really eye-opening when you take away sort of the institution and you look at the individual and what they're also dealing with within the home setting if they're having to do remote learning. So it's one of the, the aspects that I think Sometimes people on the outside who are just looking at, well, how can I get my kids back into school are forgetting, right? So right. with some of your peers, are there things in place to sort of assist you guys with the dual learning aspect? Like, are they, are you getting more resources? Are you getting more assistance? Are there more online preparation courses? Like, how is... How is last summer different than this summer in terms of what you're doing to prepare for the yeah. new world? Well, and I, I think I want to focus on two aspects here, the idea of COVID, but also, um, you know, the recent uh, focus on uh, racial injustice uh, in the country, because that's also a part of this that needs to be unpacked. So I'll start with COVID. I can't say that my school 
has changed um, with regards to the resources that are being offered. I do know that they are providing um, some more time to collaborate, earlier time to collaborate on what this is going to look like. So we have been meeting um, during the summers to try to figure out, during this summer, I should say, to try to figure out uh, what this is going to look like um, across various different lanes. Have they paid you extra for those extra meetings? No, I'm serious. Um, no, they have not. Okay. And I, 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 I say this, right. Mm-hmm. I say this because it's important for people to also understand you're mm-hmm. putting in more work, but that doesn't necessarily mean you're being compensated for the extra work that you're right. doing, which we all appreciate. But I think it's important to throw that out there. But anyway, go go, go ahead. I mean, and, and let's be honest with issues of inequity, um, which... COVID-19 clearly is a a case of unpacking and providing solutions for inequity. In cases like this, uh, I don't, I'm not sure if some schools in the private sector even uh, pay for dealing with this without COVID. So it it is part of the beast of private school. It's like a gift and a curse, right? We're in here. you're salaried. We're salaried and we're working hard. And some teachers are, again, are focused on the inequity issues um, and others um, might not be, but some um, who are not be might be paid more for, for doing, I guess, a, a little less heavy lifting. Right. Because the inequity work in, in dealing with trying to create equitable schools is, I think, the toughest job of this, especially at private school. Mm-hmm. Although I can't speak it- to public school. Yeah, I was going to say, so, uh, and I'll give you just a glimpse of where I see some of the issues, at least for the private sector, because that's, I'm looking at the private schools within our district, and I'd love your thoughts on this. So we're still in probably the third or fourth revamp of what's going to happen within our school system. And for the middle and high school students, they are having two sessions, morning session and afternoon session. And students will be in school for two and a half hours in the morning, and then they Mm -hmm. go home. And then they're mm-hmm. in school for two and a half hours in the afternoon and go home. And then they alternate days. So yeah. one day you're the morning, the next day you're in the afternoon. Oh, and also yeah. your parents have to take you to school. You have to find a way to get to yeah. school because buses are no longer being provided to kids. So yeah. it's it's interesting because I I understand the reason behind it in terms of spacing. And you don't want to see like the, the picture I saw at the Georgia high school. But a part of me is also thinking in two and a half hours, by the time you get settled in, you know, after all the chaos of, oh, my God, I can't believe it, you know, just kids being kids. I'm trying to imagine what that's going to be like for a teacher to really get the content to the students in that in that time frame, while also considering the auxiliary work that they have to do to send back to kids who are going home that afternoon. And, you know, so all of it. So as an educator, I mean, what what are your thoughts about that system that we're going to attempt here in in at least our district in New Hampshire? Yeah, I think the scheduling is a, a major issue, right? Uh, mm-hmm. Because for me, I, I think it's one thing if you're going to be strictly remote. It's one thing if you're going to be strictly uh, in the class. It's one thing if you're going to follow the same schedule roughly every day. Right. It would take to change it up for kids who need routine in order to catch on to trends in their learning is difficult. And I think it's also hard for teachers. Absolutely. Um, yeah. And I think uh, for me, 
like you also have to look at what routine is going to look like with regards to monitoring COVID, right? Like, so when we go outside for recess, what happens when kids trade masks? What happens if, you know, kids aren't six feet apart, I guess. I was talking about that with my girlfriend, who's also a private middle school teacher. And she says, how am I going to be able to like actually measure the distance? You know, um, well, am I really cons- going to get mad at the three feet? Right. And also, what are <laughs> the consequences? We we still yeah. haven't figured out how to get the adults in our society to maintain yeah. six feet apart, to wear masks yeah. properly. You know, covering yeah. your mouth or just your nose does not cut it. So we're expecting yeah. children to follow these guidelines and then putting the pressure on educators to enforce them. But we haven't right. even figured out how to enforce this stuff in our day-to-day lives in the last four and a half months. So it seems right. like a, I mean, I, I, I feel for both of you. I feel for a lot of teachers right now in this scenario, because how can you focus on the academics when you're constantly focused mm. on the, are you safely distanced? Are you, please mm-hmm. cover your face. Did you wash your hands? Is that mm-hmm. a sneeze or a sneeze? You know, like, mm-hmm. <laughs> it just seems like yeah. a whole lot to do. While also and trying when to throw ru- out math. Yeah, and when the routine is changing constantly, right? I mean, that, that adds the, the different element as well. Like, it's one thing if we are certain about the guidelines with regards to Massachusetts, but if they constantly change, that also adds a different element for what our school's guidelines will be and therefore what we'll be doing potentially in the classroom with regards to monitoring our kids, right? right? So it's just a lot to, to handle. And I also want to, and I I always focus on inequity with regards to race, because like it also puts an added burden on teachers who have been doing the quote unquote work to try to make sure that students are equitably reprimanded or monitored, disciplined, right? I don't want to use those words because to me, those are very police oriented. For example, black girls are constantly, at least in, in public schools and probably in private schools, punished more than some of their peers, right? And if that's going to carry over into this new realm, you know, you got to think that Black girls in this case and other vulnerable students in other circumstances, that trend will continue once this idea of COVID and policing COVID comes into play. I hope that we can get past the idea of policing, but but um, that is what it's going to turn into. It is. And you bring up an excellent point. And I think What it does, too, and for those who maybe can't see within the race realm because, you know, they don't live in a community where race is an issue, but finances, economics can be an issue, right? So if you're in a place where you're expected to go to school physically for two and a half hours of the day and then go home for two hours in order to complete your studies, what happens if you don't have the technology at home to do the research? What Mm. happens if you don't have the Wi-Fi capability? What happens if you have one Mm -hmm. iPad that you're sharing and your brother is in the morning session and you're in the afternoon? You know, so Mm -hmm. these are the thoughts that are now coming to my head where it's, we're making a lot of assumptions about what every student is going to have access to, but we aren't Mm -hmm. doing what's necessary to provide those things. So I don't know, like, does your school provide each student with an iPad or a laptop, right? So within the private sector, you guys, that's part of the program, but I don't know if every school does that. And for those that don't, the expectations are what? Like are students expected to produce the same amount of work that others are if they're in a drastically different environment to do that independent work? It's difficult because I think, you know, I'm looking at, I read an article about Worcester, right? And Mm -hmm. 
Worcester Public Schools specifically, and they were talking about how technology access and resources got delivered way, way late in the early stages of the corona outbreak in the spring. Whereas some maybe districts got technology off the jump, this Worcester uh, public school situation, kids ended up getting technology way late. And by that time, it was immeasurable. And I wonder if districts like Worcester have even prepared to get those kids back into school, given that we've just found out some new regulations about Massachusetts, right? Right. With regards to how schools going to reopen. So it's just, I, I think there are a lot of potential gaps that aren't covered. So then I'll, I'll let me pose, yeah, so let me pose mm-hmm. this question to you. And I, and I had posted about it recently online thinking about, so what is the problem with us doing a full stop? In theory, right? Full stop. Like, yeah. Of education. What if we say we need six months, both public and private schools, to figure out how do we safely teach? How do we, and yes, I know that there are all sorts of nuances, like how do we pay people? Like, how do we do this? Especially in private schools where people are paying a tuition. So yes, there's all of that, yeah. there's that whole component, but at least with public education, the hope is people aren't gonna say, I want my taxes back because kids aren't mm-hmm. physically in school. Mm-hmm. What's the problem with us saying, just stop and figure out how do we do this right? Because in mm-hmm. my opinion, if we do this right now, we're going to mm-hmm. do this right for a long time with or without mm-hmm. a pandemic, you know, mm-hmm. because then we're giving access to education to everyone because we're taking the mm-hmm. time to figure out how to do that. But as an educator, what are, what are your thoughts on that being a, well, a possibility? I think the stoppage of funding um, in private schools would be interesting. Um, I'm curious to see how they would be able to launch again without, you know, a year's worth of tuition coming in. Yeah. I wonder how their endowments would be affected. So that, that for me, from a private school lens, would be the issue. Mm-hmm. I think a, a full stop also doesn't necessarily stop um, certain people from getting advantages, right, yes. with regards to their learning. So to me, partially, like the issue with the full stop isn't, you know, we give the full stop and everyone's going to be equal, right? I think there will still be some people that want to take advantage of SAT prep, of course, or ACT prep in order to advance their child's learning. So therefore, the issue for me would be like, what are the policies that are in place with regards to standardized testing? And how can we alter those for the college level? Interestingly enough, in the conversation that I had earlier with Akil, he talked about that. And a lot of the colleges Mm. are actually going to opt out of SAT, ACT, because he He's created a he he owned a company called Bell Curves that prepares people for the tests for college admissions. And so he said a lot of the colleges are now we just got to take a step back. We got to take a yeah. step back. And because you can't expect everyone to be able to do that because they can't get to testing right. centers and they can't they can't take the test. So assuming that's off the table. But like you said, I still think that there's an issue with the pods. Right. And I'm talking about the homeschool pods. Yeah. Which are yeah. popping I have a lot up of thoughts on that. Which yeah. I've already seen on our parent forum in our town. I've already seen three or four mm-hmm. posts with people mm-hmm. looking for tutors, people looking for teachers mm-hmm. who perhaps aren't going back to teach. And mm-hmm. they're looking to pay them privately, which seems very enticing mm-hmm. if you don't want to go back into the school setting to teach four or five children in the same grade at somebody's nice house in the, the town in which you live. 
for three hours a day and still earn the same amount that you might earn as a full-time teacher. So, well, it goes into now um, more privatization within education. Right. Um, And, and that can become an issue, right? Because I I think once I I think the, the common term or saying in education publicly is that uh, you have to follow the money, right? So if the money is going towards private schools, that has a certain effect on maybe taxes and the funding that public schools can take in. Um, so private institutions, tutoring companies, if they're receiving those funds and people are pulling their kids out of the public schools, that affects whoever's essentially left over, right? And those leftover people are the vulnerable populations, the low-income, BIPOC kids in a lot of cases. And families, I should say as well, because this is a family issue. To me, it would be best if, why don't we just provide payments for internet and provide technology? There's an idea. I mean, why don't we have that in place already? (laughs) Right, right. I mean, I know that's wishful thinking, right? But we could though. That's, that's the whole point. We actually could, you know, and and Mm -hmm. perhaps my numbers aren't accurate, right? So, but I'm just throwing it Mm -hmm. out there. We have all of the capabilities of technology in place. You've got mm-hmm. neighborhoods that are already wired for internet and cable. If we're bailing out major businesses who are going through financial difficulties, why aren't we then pointing that money towards, okay, here, listen, Comcast, we're going to ask you guys to provide free internet service for the next six months. to particular neighborhoods where we know the internet usage is much lower because people don't have it accessible. Yeah. Okay, how much is that going to cost? A lot, but what it's providing is access to a Mm -hmm. lot of people who don't have it. So I'm just, I'm not fully understanding why we seem to be stuck in the box of Mm -hmm. what we're used to rather than thinking outside and being like, okay, we know that a lot of these kids are probably going to end up back home remote learning. What have we right. set in place to prepare for that? Right. And that's a way to, to even things out, right? Because if the privatization will happen, right, at least the public solutions or the public school solutions, I should say, um, would be able to provide those kids that don't have that access, the necessary means to right. still be schooled, right? It's a start. It's um, something. It's start. Yeah. You know, and I'll bring up Bowdoin College because I, I went there and I just think it's an awesome school. And they thought through it. And in terms of what they set in place, they said, we are going to bring back students who are first years because mm-hmm. they haven't experienced college. I'm assuming this is what they were mm-hmm. thinking. They haven't experienced college. Mm-hmm. So to have your freshman year be remote kind of takes away from the you're meeting your faculty, you're in your fellow students safely, obviously. Mm-hmm. They're mm-hmm. bringing back students who said, I cannot learn within the confines of where mm-hmm. I live outside of campus. Because mm-hmm. there are a number of students who are like, I, you know, I just don't have the home for that kind of learning. Like, I don't have the space. I share a house with, you know, six siblings, whatever the case may be. So they're allowing those students back. And then they're allowing international students. So imagine if we yeah. had set up for public schools where the buildings became primarily for students with the most needs mm. and everything else was done remotely. It's it's not a perfect scenario, but it throws out yeah. the option to those who need it the most rather than those who feel owed because yeah. of whatever it is that they feel like they, they are owed to do this. So it's, I don't know, crazy ideas, yeah. but I feel like we have to start thinking outside the box and 
Yeah. I think, I think what you're saying makes sense, but I, I think the other thing to note is that there is a pandemic right now, health pandemic. And I wonder which groups would be, you know, at the highest health risk of coming back to campus. You know, I saw some forums, right, where people are, are pretty rough and, and racist uh, with regards to, like, saying, send the underserving, underserved populations back to school and just let them crowd together oh. and pick up, essentially pick up the disease. And I'm like, well, that's mm-hmm. that's it's kind America. of risky, too, right? That's America for you. Okay. Um, that's, that's not and, the vision. But the, yeah. Right. But it's difficult, too, though, because, you know, even with these pods, right, I was reading an article from The New York Times about it, and they pointed out that even if you go past five, you're still running a major potential health risk, right? Uh, right. Because even five kids, with regards to, like, what they're doing after the potting and with regards to their family members, right. it still has room to spread. So to me, I think the best thing is to make everything remote and provide technology access and more funds to families. Right. But I'm just a thinker and a dreamer, right? If the goal is to repress the disease, even the pods might not even solve that. In fact, it might just create more educational disparities uh, while spreading the disease in some way in in those communities. Right. And let's Um, be honest, truth be told, we didn't do what we needed to do as a nation mm -hmm. over the summer in order to allow our students to come back to school. And I say this because we opened up bars. And I really have an issue with the fact that we opened up bars, we opened up indoor dining during the summer. You know, people could eat outside. We've seen it because it worked well for the first few weeks that we were doing it. And all of a sudden it was like, well, let's go back indoors. Let's go bowling. Let's go inside. And I'm like, why are we going inside? We're actually in the season where we can get away Mm -hmm. with keeping everything outdoors and doing what we need to do so that when school does come around, we can say our numbers Mm -hmm. are so low right now. We feel Mm -hmm. comfortable sending kids back because we're Mm -hmm. what, you know, we're within like the safer zone. We didn't do that. Mm -hmm. And so now Mm -hmm. we're expecting everything to be fine. And I'm kind of like how selfish, Mm -hmm. how selfish we all were. I don't mean me. I mean, like, we others people. Because I was not going to bars and I was not eating in restaurants. You know, mm-hmm. I miss that life, too. Yeah. yeah, the last time I went out inside of any place was with you and Jake. Oh, I know. Oh, yeah. It was Which a good we, night. I just, I feel horrible because I think in two months' time, you and I will be back on the phone again. Mm-hmm. Indoors. Mm-hmm. Remotely. Talking about, <laughs> so how's your remote teaching going? Yeah. Uh, hybrid, hybrid, hybrid. Hybrid, excuse me. Hybrid. <laughs> yeah. How's the hybrid yeah. going? Because they've shut down our school in New Hampshire. Because that's kind of what yeah. I feel like is going to happen. But so tell me, like, what's what's your, mm-hmm. you know, f- final big thoughts about yeah. where we are, where we go. And let's also throw out the fact that what's his name? Trump's son. Oh, his yeah, school? man. Yeah. His yeah. School's what, St. Andrews. St. Andrews is strictly remote through October 1. And that's been said. And I don't know if all private schools, I think we leave it's a private school. I don't know if they all have that option. So, But isn't that uh, just the most, like, beautifully comical thing ever where you're like, really? Well, th- that's when you see through just... the BS. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right? I mean, because I think we've seen this administration be very quick to put kids uh, back into school and say, 
now's the time to reopen, but we can still see that some people, the ones that are privileged, uh, in this case, the president in is able to mm-hmm. <laughs> be in his bunker and keep his family <laughs> safe. Right. Um, nice. What are my, what are my final thoughts? What are yeah. my final thoughts? Do you want those? Yes, I do. Well, the thing that I'm stuck on and I, I've been trying to allude to it in this episode is like, yes, we're in a racial injustice and a subsequent call for justice moment, right? And I think it's going to be easy for some, whether you're at a pod, whether you're in private school, whether you're in public school, to just try to avoid seeing the storm of inequity that's in front of us, right? Right. Huddle up in your bunker all you want, but like if molten lava is flying from the sky, it's still happening, right? You just don't have to worry about it because potentially you have privilege, right? So I guess my concern is if we're worried uh, so much about what's happening with regards to our education system that we really take the elephant in the room here and we try to unpack it uh, with our kids. They can see it. They're on the internet. They know what's happening more Absolutely. than anyone think, right? So we, I think as educators and parents, I think it's time we actually start talking about what this current moment means for our politics, our education system, and their futures, right? Because to me, it's clear what's happening out here. I talked to my sister, who's 16. She sees the racial injustice um, that's happening. And I think we have to keep finding ways to call out the inequity holistically within the classroom. Right. Right. You have to actually find practices and lesson plans that are not only teaching your standards uh, for teaching um, present tense or five paragraph essays, but also talking about some of the inequities in our curriculum and changing curriculum so that we're differentiating towards multiple learning styles and the race, genders, classes and all other aspects of social identity that these kids are wrestling with right now. I think unions uh, within public schools, this is interesting times, right? Because if teachers are banding together over um, the reopening of schools, how are parents coming together, right? Oh. To, to support that, right? Especially if there are gonna be BIPOC students that are, BIPOC and low income students that are gonna be at the higher risk of contracting the disease. Mm-hmm. Isn't now the time to, I guess, create more coalitions that fight against um, the reopening? Or just ask for um, providing payments for the internet or call for actions to defund police departments. All of that, right? Baseline. Baseline, we have to make the changes. And I agree with you. We have to start somewhere. So it just can't be, okay, now we're opening up schools. It's like, but what else are we going to do? So this conversation, like many, is an ongoing one. Kyle, I, I appreciate you so much. And Take care, good luck, stay safe, and I look forward to us talking again soon. Thank you to our host, Clovercrest Media Group, Kev from BK for our visual arts, and the fire intro song, Filthy, by TVP Records. Podcast system.